Welcome to the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. My guest today is Kathy Wood. She's a visiting associate professor at the College of Engineering and the College of Business, Security, and Intelligence at Embry-Riddle's Prescott campus. She spent most of her career in aerospace engineering, focusing over the last 12 years as the director of nacelle programs at Collins Aerospace and United Technologies Aerospace Systems. She earned a bachelor's in aeronautical engineering in 1993 and a master's in engineering management in 2018, both from Embry-Riddle. She also has a doctorate in business administration from Trident University International, which she completed this year. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Alan. Thank you for having me. So we're going to start with the pre-launch and we're at T minus four questions. Are you buckled in? I'm buckled in and ready to go. <laughs> All right, great. So what was your favorite place to spend leisure time when you were a student at Embry-Riddle? That's an easy one. I enjoyed most riding horses on Granite Mountain. I didn't have a lot of spare time during my undergrad degree, but when I did, you could find me out on the mountain riding. Wonderful, wonderful. I bet it's really scenic. Yes, it's beautiful. Beautiful mountain all times of the year. Yeah. Is there a particular song that takes you back to those days? Uh, you know, there there actually is, and it's funny. I don't. I really don't like this song, and I don't know why I remember <laughs> it, but I remember exactly where I was out by the airport the first time that I heard it, and it's um, All That She Wants by Ace of Base. Oh, my God. I have a soft spot for Ace of Base, so... <laughs> yeah. I love Ace of Base in general, but that particular song I wasn't crazy about, but I don't know why it sticks. And every time I hear it, I remember exactly where I was. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what was your uh, go-to late night meal or snack? <laughs> that one's a little tougher. Um, I'm a bit of a garbage disposal, so pretty much anything that would have been handy, I would have I would have been in for. Um, but probably ramen noodles and ice cream. Oh yeah, yeah, the old standby. That's a that's a good old uh, college standby for sure. <laughs> so, what class or professor had the longest impact on you personally or in your career? Personally, um, definitely Terry Thomas. I had Terry Thomas for humanities courses, and as an engineer, you know, humanities are not the classes that you typically look the most forward to. Uh, but Terry made them very very personal. Uh, his approach was very personal. He made me very comfortable, and especially in speech class, um, and certainly had a long-lasting impact on me personally. Um, Career-wise, I would say Dick Felton in engineering and Don Bushnell, uh, who taught math, had both had big impacts on me career-wise. Very good. Very good. All right. So we're done with the countdown, and it's time for the ignition and the launch burn. All right. So I'll start easy. I hear you're into polo and uh, you mentioned horse riding and that uh, I've heard you had a couple of horses. Uh, I spent my adolescence in sort of rural Illinois and I knew like several women who absolutely loved horseback riding and anything equestrian ever since they were like little girls. And that was like the thing. Right. Um, I, it seems like a common thing among horse lovers. I'm wondering if that applies to you or if you pick that up sort of later in the adulthood. Yeah, it definitely applies to me. I started, I was a horse nut forever. Um, my dad told me that the only pair of shoes they could keep on me when I was a, a tiny little girl was a pair of cowboy boots. Um, but when I was about nine years old, I started, I went down to a farm that was at the end of the street from where we lived that had horses. And I would feed the horses grass, pull grass and feed it to them through the fence. 
And the owner came out one day after he'd seen me there doing that several days and asked me if I'd like to come and meet the horses. And so that started many, many years all through um, elementary school, grade school and into high school that I worked for him. Um, and I got to ride in exchange for helping out around the farm. And then I started training horses for other people when I was about uh, 12 years old, I think. And I started my own breeding and training business when I was almost 15. I was just entering my freshman year of high school. And so I trained horses, bred horses, showed horses, trained riders for most of my life. And, um, and then, yeah, I got into polo only just recently. Okay. Um, now I'm, I'm curious. So you, you, at what point did you get like a horse of your own? I was 13 when my parents finally decided that I must be serious about this. And they bought me my first horse of my own. Oh my God. That must've been a dream come true. Oh, it was. So uh, about polo, I'm trying to teach my daughter soccer and she like she'll swing her leg and completely miss the ball. Right. And she's attached to her leg. It's part of her body. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm picturing somebody like polo always seemed crazy to me that you're on top of a moving horse. You're swinging this long hammer and trying to hit this ball that's on the ground. How do you get good at that? Yeah, polo, you know, some people develop this the capability to play. Most people, hand-eye coordination is really important. So if you're good at tennis or baseball or softball or golf or something like that, um, then you tend to pick up polo pretty easily. If you don't have good eye-hand coordination, then it can be rather challenging. Um, so, you know, it's not to say that it can't be done. People do develop the, the talent uh, to play polo, even if they don't have that coordination, but it certainly makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as uh, I imagine peripheral vision is also and good sight is really important. Do you see a lot anybody like riding with glasses on? I say as I poke my glasses. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We wear we um, wear safety glasses. We wear goggles. So, um, oh, okay. not, you know, people usually if they're they need assistance with vision, they'll wear contacts while they're playing. So they wear, can wear goggles over top because then, you know, especially in the summer we play, you get sweaty and hot and your goggles make your glasses steam up and then you can't see anything. Um, but really flexibility is a big thing because um, while you're moving down the field, you have to be able to turn in the saddle to look behind you to see if your teammates about to pass the ball up to you. Or if you have the ball and maybe it's on the near side of your horse and you want to move it to the off side of the horse for a better shot at the goal, you need to make sure that there's not another horse too close to you behind you. Um, so there are a lot of rules that are in place in polo for the safety of the rider and the horse. Uh, so we call it crossing the line of the ball. You're not allowed to do that. So you really, you have to know what the line of the ball is. You have to know where all the other horses and players are on the field and how much space you have around you before you can make certain moves, um, without being, having a foul called on you. Okay. Okay. Is it hard to switch the, the, is it called a mallet? What is it called? Yeah, mallet. Okay. Is it uh, like if you switch from the left to to the right side with it being so long, is it t difficult to like kind of get it over the horse? No, we we ride um, with mallets up. So our arm bent at 90 degrees and the mallet up. Um, a lot of people think you change the mallet to your other hand. You don't. You have four reins in your left hand and the mallet in your right hand. So if the ball's on the left-hand side of your horse, you have to reach over your horse and hit with your still with the mallet in your right hand. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't even realize that you still have to hold the reins. Of course you do. Yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, that's really cool. Uh, you give me a lot of perspective on polo, which is something I knew very little about. <laughs> now, so you finished your bachelor's degree in 1993 and then started your master's you know, more than 20 years later in 2016. You had had a long career at that point in aerospace engineering, and including having managed a team of you know 100 IT professionals at Goodrich. Uh, what made you feel like you had something to gain by investing you know, uh, in a master's in engineering management at that point? Yeah, it was, um, you know, I actually started a master's degree in 1995 at Notre Dame. So after I graduated from Embry-Riddle and Prescott, I went back home to Northern Indiana. I was working for Allied Signal Aerospace and I started my master's in engineering at Notre Dame. But back in those days, you know, way, way back when we didn't have Internet and all these things that enabled us to take courses from anywhere. So I had to go to a physical classroom with a physical book. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge was I was traveling a tremendous amount for Allied Signal. And so it just became impossible to be in class and support the travel uh, requirements that I had for my job. Um, and since Allied Signal was paying for the degree, I said to my leadership, I can only do one. I either have to cut the travel way back so I can do the degree or I've got to give up the degree. But you guys are paying for the degree. So your choice. They wanted me to continue traveling. So I did give up doing the degree at that point. But it was still I always had the passion for doing it. Um, and that never left me over the you know next many years of my career. And I thought about several times doing it. Um, but the earlier days of my career, I was really focused on moving into a senior leadership position. Um, and so I, I just couldn't find the time to do both justice. And then I think one of the things that really tipped it was when the worldwide campus is, is so easy to use. It's so accommodating. It makes it, you know, the flexibility is fantastic. So it's very easy for a working adult to be able to find the time to do a degree program at the same time. And so that was a big factor for why I chose to do it when I did it. Um, and then the other part of it was that my husband and I had decided that when we left aerospace, when we retired from aerospace, that we were going to move back to Prescott. About five and a half years ago, we bought property out here. And our, our goal was to build a home and retire here. And I thought, you know, one of the things that I could do um, after I retire from aerospace is to come back and teach. And so I started kind of investigating the teaching, the potential for teaching. And um, when I decided that that was a real possibility, that's what encouraged me to continue on for my master's and then do my doctorate in business. Yeah. Well, and so now you are teaching at Embry-Riddle and uh, you started earlier this year, just before the summer. Right. Tell me a little bit about how that, how that first, uh, how you first started. Yeah, well, it was it was uh, interesting because I jumped in in the middle of the semester. I started um, supporting in March um, through the end of the semester in May. And um, I was fortunate because I had been for the past two or three years, I had been working on capstone projects with Collins Aerospace. Um, so I was on the Collins side of the Embry-Riddle capstone sponsoring a project. So I'd worked with two teams through their um, junior and senior years to, to, to uh, work on a problem that Collins had assigned to them. Um, and then those were the courses that I jumped into in the spring when I started to teach. It was a mechanical engineering and an aer aerospace engineering capstones. 
Um, so the transition was fairly easy because one of the teams was the Collins team. And so I knew those students very well from being on the industry side of that project. Uh, so that transition was quite easy. And of course, I knew uh, Professor Garrick and Dr. Madler very well from both alumni activities and from my prior industry activities with Embry-Riddle. Yeah. Now, so now you're in, uh, you're a couple of weeks into your first full semester teaching your own classes. How, how are you liking that so far? How's it going? It's, it, I think it's going well. You probably should ask my students <laughs> how it's going, but um, I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's very hectic. It's a lot of work this first semester, um, which is not a surprise to me because I had several people tell me that the first semester or first two semesters can be really, really challenging. Um, coming in and building the Canvas materials and all of that to support the course um, has been, you know, just time-wise, it's not difficult, but time-wise, it's a big challenge. And you realize very quickly that even proofreading something 15 times, it inevitably, the first time you put it up on the screen in the classroom, a student points out some typo or <laughs> a math <laughs> error that you have. So that's really frustrating, but... Um, but it's been great. And the faculty have been super supportive and helpful. Um, the business school has provided me with, you know, lecture materials that they've used in this course in past semesters so that at least I have a place to start from. And I, I really can just focus on tweaking it and adding to it and making it my own, as opposed to having to start from a blank sheet of paper. Um, and the same thing in the College of Engineering. So that's been really helpful. It's made the transition far easier than it may have been otherwise. Right, right. So what courses are you teaching this semester? I am teaching um, senior design. I'm co-teaching with Dr. Martin um, on the senior AE senior design. Uh, she's pregnant and going to be going out on maternity leave about November, and then I will take over the course for from her at that point. Um, so we're co-teaching currently. And then I have a preliminary design capstone um, that's the mechanical engineering. Uh, and there's four teams in there, three mechanicals and one um, energy team. And then I have a section of engineering economics for the School of Business. That's all right. That's a pretty good variety. Now, uh, one thing that I've learned while training people in, in my job and, and teaching my kids how to do things or teaching them concepts is I have to get out of my own head and put myself in the mind of someone who doesn't already know this stuff. That's hard for me because I assume that I'm a dumb person. So then when I'm explaining something to somebody, I think that that's like a basic level explanation when it's not. <laughs> Apparently, I'm smaller, smarter than I thought I was. So I had a problem where I basically be throwing people in the deep end and they'd either sink or swim. Uh, that's a learning modality that works for me, but it's not for everybody. Uh, it might not even be for most people. Now, I'm wondering, so how do you approach teaching complex lessons to a class of many different students? How do you lead them into the concepts? Yeah, so I, I think I'm fortunate because of my time that I spent teaching people how to how to ride horses, preparing them for showing. Um, you know, I work with everything from very, very small children to grown-ups that are just getting oh, yeah. into it. And so I had to tailor, you know, my approach for teaching them the mechanics of how the rider interacts with the horse in very different ways. The way I, I would teach a five-year-old would be very different than the way I would teach a 45-year-old. Um, and then the same thing in industry, to be honest, even though I was working with a bunch of professionals, uh, my role as director of, of new product development programs, was I was responsible for everything from the blank sheet of paper to the product on the aircraft at entry into service. Um, and so that meant 
engineering, supply chain, quality, operations. I, I had responsibility for all the functions that had to support that program. Um, and quite often, you know, you would you would be explaining an engineering con concept to someone in supply chain or to someone in quality or an operations thing to someone in engineering. So I've always really had to find different ways to be able to get the message across. And then also, you know, whether I'm talking to a detail design engineer or the executive of, of our company, you have to, you just learn that you've got to tailor the message and the delivery in a way that all different levels across and up and down the organization can understand the message that you're trying to get across. And so I use very much the same principles in, in the classroom. Um, in engineering economics, it's easy for me to assume that I'm the dumb person because <laughs> I haven't used these concepts in industry for a very long time. I was fortunate to have a fantastic and very large team of finance people supporting me. So they definitely did all the heavy lifting. Um, but now I'm going back and reteaching myself these concepts. Um, and I, so I think it's helping to, in the delivery to the students because I'm having to really go back to the basics for myself and making sure that I can reiterate once I get the concept in my head that I can reiterate it a day later or a couple days later, um, I think is helping to, to make sure that the message is clear uh, for the students. And in a, certainly I have some students that have business minors, they're, in, they're all engineers, but some of them have business minors. So they're much more in tune with some of the concepts than the engineering students who don't have business minors. Uh, so I just try to keep the class interesting so that those that already know what the concept is that I'm teaching aren't you know, bored and falling asleep while I'm trying to get the message across to somebody that may be seeing it for the very first time. Right, right. Well. Uh... That feels like it might be related to my next question that uh, have you been uh, maybe not so early in the semester, but maybe you have plans to bring uh, examples from your career into the classroom to help illustrate your concepts? Yes, absolutely. That's um, one of the things that, that I told the students at the very beginning is, you know, I'm, I'm especially in the finance class. I'm not a finance person. I was never in a finance role throughout my career. However, I've been responsible for programs that have been worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, that P&L was my responsibility. And so I had to understand the fundamentals of the, the finance in order to be able to manage the program effectively. And yes, I had the team of finance people that did the real nitty gritty detail work but I still had to understand what was going on. I had to be able to provide them with the right information to um, put the right plans in place for the program so that we could meet the financial goals that we had to meet um, for the stakeholders. And so sharing some of those experiences with the class has been, um, has been really fun. And I think that they really appreciate it. Um, and the other part of it too, is to help the engineers understand that you need to care about finance and you need to care about engineering economics. And I know I said, I, I know a lot of you probably came into this class. I have a whole mix from second semester freshmen to second semester seniors. And I said, I can imagine the seniors are probably like, this is my last, I have to do it now. I've put it off my whole undergraduate career. So I just have to get it over with. And maybe the freshmen are thinking, I just want to get it out of the way up front. So I don't have to worry about it for the rest of my, my undergrad career. Um, but my goal was to impart upon them how this can impact them, 
how they need to use this knowledge once they leave Embry-Riddle and they get that first job in industry and how with this knowledge they can use it to set themselves apart if they're interested in moving into leadership or moving into senior you know, roles within whatever organization they join. This knowledge they can use to set themselves apart from the average engineer who may have you know, learned what they had to learn to get through the class and then brain dumped that information. Right, right. Well, and that's something, uh, you know, that that sort of industry experience I've noticed seems to be a, a recurring theme across our faculty. You know, it's something that we value at Embry-Riddle is, um, you know, uh, professors and instructors that have uh, have this wealth of industry knowledge and have this experience that they can bring to the classroom and really, you know, impart the importance of the lessons that they are, uh, you know, teaching. Um, do you, uh, and I know that Embry-Riddle is looking for more people like you who are interested in making sort of that leap from engineering to academia. There are multiple professor positions open right now at the colleges of engineering, both out there in Prescott and here in Daytona Beach. Um, do you feel like it's been, that's been, uh, I know it's really early, but have, has it been a good step for your career to take? Has it, have you found it to be rewarding work? Yeah, I, absolutely. It's rewarding work. Um, it's fulfilling for me personally. Uh, it's a great learning opportunity for me. I've, you know, kind of been a lifelong learner for, you know, pretty much forever. So it, it's great to have the opportunity to learn about the, the details of the projects that these students are working on. The AE capstones are typically spacecraft. Um, my whole career in aerospace has all been structures. Um, so doing spacecraft stuff, you know, smelting ores on the moon and <laughs> things like that are completely foreign to me. So it's a great opportunity for me to learn more technically. Um, as I mentioned, it's been a great opportunity for me to, to re-engage with the finance concepts that um, form the basis of what I did in industry. And, um, and then it's also fulfilling just to, to be able to see the light bulbs go off. And that's, that's one of the things that using the industry experience and being able to translate that to the students, you can see when you're teaching a concept in the, in the classroom that, you know, maybe you've got sort of a deer in the headlights look from someone in the class. They're not quite grasping the concept, but if you can share a real world example of how that translates into industry, then, and you see the light bulb go off, then that's, that's very rewarding. I find that to be very rewarding. So that's a great aspect of it for me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. I imagine you see that look on their face when it just clicks, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what's the hardest part of adjusting to this change in your career so far? Uh, you know, I don't know, gosh, the hardest part. There really hasn't been a hard part. I, and I think that part of it is I'm fortunate that I was such an active alum that I knew a lot of the faculty that were already on campus. I knew a, I know a lot of the administrative staff. So I kind of slid in with a lot of relationships already in place. And I had people that I felt very comfortable with that I've known for many years that I could go and ask my stupid questions to. And who do I go ask about this or who do I go ask to get, you know, ink for my printer or, you know, whatever crazy weird questions I had. Um, so that that's been really helpful. And I've talked to some of the other brand new faculty and, and I think that's probably one of the most common challenges that I've heard them say is that it's just getting to know who all the people are that do all the things so they know where to go when they need help. And I, I'm just really fortunate that I, I have a lot of those relationships already. So it made that transition a lot easier. But 
even if hadn't, I had those relationships already, um, you know, everyone here has been so super helpful and checking in to make sure everything's okay. Even if I'm not asking for help, they're coming to me and saying, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? You don't need anything just to, you know, make extra sure. So it's, it's been a great transition. That's uh, all right. Uh, um, last year, you were one of uh, you were a guest at one of our virtual homecoming panels, uh, and there were students and young alumni on the call. And you recommended that they not be afraid to step out of their comfort zone and accept an opportunity that might scare you to death today, but could end up being one of the best decisions you ever made in your career. Now, that sounds like a piece of advice that was born out of experience. Can you give me a little bit of depth of like, where did that come from? Yes, uh, for most of my career, you know, people, a lot of, some people have a plan for their life from the time they were like, you know, 10 years old, they knew what they wanted to be when they grew up and they knew where they were going to go to work and they knew all these things about their life. For as organized and structured of a person as I typically am, that was not me. Um, so I figured out when I was in high school that aeronautical engineering was what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't know that from the time I was five. And then once I got into industry, uh, I just, I really tried to take advantage of opportunities as they popped up or choose not to take advantage of them. Um, but all of the big moves that I made when I started to move into leadership roles, um, they were all taps on the shoulder. Someone in my leadership chain came to me and said, Hey, there's this opportunity over here. We think you'd be a good fit for it. Would you be willing to consider it? And some of them I, I didn't want to do. Um, usually that was because it required, um, you know, a, a big transition, uh, a relocation or something like that. And I had my husband's career. He's also an engineer. So we had his career to consider. I had horses, you know, for my whole life. So picking out my horses and moving to France, for example, was a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they don't fit on the plane very easy, right? Exactly. You can't just buy them a ticket. So, so some opportunities I didn't pursue, but all of the ones that I did, I can tell you that I was scared to death. Every single one of them, when I was asked to take over as director of information technology for all of the good rich sites across all of North America, that was huge. I went from managing like 10 people to managing 15 directs, but a staff that was over a hundred people. Um, that was a huge shift, and there was a big cultural change that needed to occur within the IT organization that I was taking on as well. But so thankful that I I got over my fear and I just jumped in and tackled it because that was an amazing role, and I learned a tremendous amount through that position. And then that job opened up the opportunity for me to move into program management as well. And when the 787, the Boeing 787-9 program was launched, the nacelle program for it launched, I got another tap on the shoulder and was asked if I'd be willing to consider leaving the world of IT and engineering and moving into program management it was like, you know, and that's going to the dark side for an engineer to leave the technical world and go to the program management world. You, you're definitely crossing a line. <laughs> so that was very scary from, that perspective, as well as the finan potential financial impact on the business, because we're talking, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that these programs are worth. And if you screw it up, it's, it's a very big deal. <laughs> so, so that was really scary too, um, but also a terrific transition, a terrific role. And that led to um, two or three more program director positions. 
of various sizes of programs, gave me the opportunities to work with Embraer and travel to Brazil, to work with Dassault Aviation and spend a lot of time in France. So all of those decisions to overcome the fear or, or just look past the fear and, and say yes, I'm very, very thankful that I did. I don't think I would have had the flexibility to make the choice to leave aerospace um, at the age that I am now and to move into teaching had I not done that and been able to, to move up in the leadership positions as I did. Sure, sure. Um, I'm curious about this uh, massive cultural change that you, you know, uh, in uh, what do you call it, workplace culture at um, at Goodrich. Uh, what what kind of cultural change was required, and what what did you what did you end up doing? Yeah, so Goodrich as a corporation, we had the most amazing culture. That was I was so fortunate to spend about uh, twenty years of my thirty years in industry working for Goodrich. Um, before we became United Technologies and Collins Aerospace. Uh, and, and the Goodrich culture was unbelievable. Really supportive, very much about mutual trust and respect, open two-way communication, adult-to-adult -adult behavior. It was a safe environment. All of those risks that I took to step into those roles that I was so fearful of stepping into, the, the safety net underneath all of that was that I knew that the company was asking me to stretch into a new role. And I felt a hundred percent confident that if I got into it and I hated it, or I was terrible at it, that they would pull me out and put me someplace where I could be successful, that I wouldn't just get the ax and, you know, be out. So that played a big part of it. But the change that needed to happen within information technology was that that organization was very inward focusing. The IT staff didn't understand the business. They didn't understand that our purpose for being there was to help that business ship product. They thought their reason for being there was to close trouble tickets and to install software. And so that cultural shift was me helping them to understand that we're a customer service organization. We are here for the sole purpose of making the rest of the organization successful so that they can design, build, and deliver product because that's how we as a company make money and that's how all of us in IT remain employed. So that, that was about a 12 month, probably a 12 month process of really just slowly chipping away and helping the organization, educating the organization on what, on the IT organization, on what the rest of the business did and what our role in it was taking them out into the shop and showing them the product, making them feel like they were not just a group that was in a, you know, in a part of the building, but they were part of the fabric of the whole organization and getting them so that they'd walk out on the shop floor and operators on the shop floor would know who they are and, you know, say, Hey Jeff, how are you doing? Nice to see you. Um, and it made a huge difference. By the time I left that role to move on to the 787 program, the IT organization was completely transformed. And the most, one of the most rewarding things about that was many years later in 2012, Goodrich was acquired by United Technologies. And United Technologies typically outsourced all of their IT. So our IT organization ended up being all outsourced and a lot of the people that worked for me were, were gone, no longer part of the organization. But the change um, and other folks, other program leaders, 
leaders in operations, people throughout the business that a year or two later would stop me in the hallway and say, thank you for everything you did when you ran IT. We didn't appreciate it back then, but now that we don't have it, we really appreciate all that you did and all that your team did. And so that was, that was, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps now just telling you about it. That was incredibly rewarding. For, for me and for my team, for those that were still around, for me to be able to share those messages with those folks that people really did care about what we did and we made a big difference in the organization through what we did. Yeah, that's really wonderful and gratifying to get that kind of feedback. Wow. Um, now, you left Collins Aerospace in November of uh, 2020, but with your engineering and IT background, I suspect you were probably plenty comfortable with technology um, but it was probably still weird. Like, I think it's been weird for everybody from a social perspective to like network or job hunt or, you know, just kind of get get to know people or reach out to other communities in this mid pandemic environment. Everyone's meeting remotely. Uh, what did you find that you had to sort of adjust in sort of your normal interview prep or that sort of thing um, in the last, you know, <laughs> you know, in the last year or so? Yeah, I think just being supportive of the folks that were on the other end of my Zoom meetings, um, you know, because I was fortunate that I had a very quiet household, no kids running around, but a lot of my coworkers or my um, other colleagues, you know, they, they did. They had children in the background making a bunch of noise, they had pets running around, or they had, in you know, many cases, husband and wife were both working from home and trying to figure out how to interact with with their colleagues without interrupting each other. So there were a lot of challenges. And it was probably the, the biggest challenge for me was just to take a deep breath and not get, you know, upset if a meeting got disrupted because, you know, somebody's kid had an accident and they had to go on mute for a couple of minutes to go sort it out. And I think that was a big challenge for a lot of people was trying to figure out just how to how to work in that environment that was a little bit more chaotic than what we were used to. Doing things remotely and being on Zoom meetings, that wasn't terribly different for us because my customers have quite often been Airbus or Dasso or somebody Embraer. So they're someplace else in the world anyway. And we had Goodrich Aerostructures had facilities all over the world, um, MRO and, and manufacturing sites and design centers. So quite often I was on the phone with Singapore or Bangalore for engineering issues or with France or Scotland or Singapore for operations or MRO issues. So that part of it was was not new to us. Most of the organization was pretty comfortable with that. Um, but then the other piece that everybody missed and then I think my team, we did a really good job of still getting together as we could to do little team building exercises and to do virtual team building exercises when that was all we could do um, because our organization was always a, a pretty tight knit group and that face to face time with people and the ability to just go out for a happy hour after work one day or to, you know, go to a sporting event together or something like that. The inability to do that, I think people really missed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so we're solidly in orbit now, uh, which means I have two more questions before we go to okay. break. Um, what, uh, what skills do you think are critical to succeeding in your line of work? And, uh, we'll, uh, I suppose, uh, we can count that, uh, as aerospace engineering since you're fairly new to the professor side. So okay. Far. 
Um, well, certainly having a high level of emotional intelligence is really important. Um, excelling at building strong relationships throughout an organization, you know, across it, up and down at all levels, and being able to think, to, uh, think strategically were definitely skills that were very important um, in my career and certainly skills that helped me to accelerate my move um, through various positions and up into leadership roles. Sure. Now, if you could go back in time and give your younger self one uh, piece of advice, what would it be? It would be to enjoy youth while chasing the goals that I'd set for myself. It's so easy to be, you know, to be, just always be thinking about the next step and when am I going to get finish this degree? When am I going to get the next degree? When am I going to get that promotion? Um, that sometimes you're so focused on the future that you forget to enjoy the time that you have right at that moment. All right. Well, thanks, Kathy. All right. We'll be right back with the splashdown. You can celebrate National Education Week from November 15th through the 19th. Consider activities that honor the team of people who work in our nation's schools. Maybe you can send a message expressing thanks to a favorite teacher or professor reaching out to old friends from a student club, or even consider going back to school for a degree that will help you land your next promotion. Embry-Riddle is a great place to continue your educational journey. Visit erau.edu slash degrees to see what's available. Remember, celebrate National Education Week, November 15th through the 19th. All right, let's do the splashdown. Uh, what was the one experience that got your heart hooked on aviation or aerospace? I think what probably seeded it, although as I mentioned, I didn't decide until I was in high school that I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. I was it was between being a vet, a veterinarian, and being an engineer. Um, but I think what seeded the ultimate decision to become an engineer was that I used to restore antique cars with my dad ever since I was a little girl, like five years old. I was turning wrenches and doing stuff with my dad, and we used to go to antique car shows all over the country. And quite a few of them, three or four of them during through the summer when I could go with him and I wasn't in school were at air museums. And I really enjoyed just as much as crawling around on the cars. I loved crawling around the airplanes. And um, I'm sure that that had something to do with my ultimate decision to go into aerospace and into aviation. Wow. So that's really cool. So I have a follow up on that. Uh, what was your favorite car to work on? My dad was, we had, he worked on everything, but his favorites were Hudson's. And um, I would say, I certainly love the Hudson's. I love Studebaker's. We had old Studebaker pickup trucks, like late forties pickup trucks, and they were amazing. Um, and we had a little Hudson Hornet, little, little tiny green roadster. That was probably my favorite one out of all that my dad and I did together. Um, and today I still have an Aulis Chalmers, a 1938 Aulis Chalmers tractor. Nice. Was the very last project that my dad and I worked on together. Oh, that's so sweet. That's really cool. All right. What's a, what's a book that's been important or influential for you? We've, gosh, you know, through my career, I've read so many books on lean. Um, we, we were a huge Toyota production system, lean manufacturing, lean product development organization. In conjunction with all of that, those changes were really significant to the business. And there was a lot of fear that as we found ways to be more efficient and to do things faster, that, that there was a fear that people would lose their jobs because we didn't need them to do that job anymore because we'd found a way to automate it mm. or to streamline it. 
So a book that I use um, is called Org Organizational Culture and Leadership um, by Sh Edward Schein. And that book was really instrumental in, in helping to understand how to address those fears and concerns that employees had as we were pushing lean manufacturing through the organization to help them to understand that their jobs were in fact secure and that what we were really doing was taking away mundane tasks and activities to give them time to focus on things that they would find more exciting and fulfilling. Great. Uh, so who's your favorite cartoon character? Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Classic, yes. Hands down. All right, so you can go to the Olympics and compete in any sport. What do you choose? We assume you're good at it. You know, you, you let's in this fantasy world, whatever sport you want to do, you're good at it. Okay, well, it would definitely be stadium jumping. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know what that one is. So you have to fill me in. Horses. Back to my horse oh, okay. passion. There you Doing go. the yeah three day eventing or the stadium jumping. Anything that's on a horse would be amazing, but. Yeah, I used to ride hunter jumpers when I was a teenager and compete on the East Coast. So that would definitely be something I would want to wow. do. Wow, so you might actually be good at that then. I, yeah, I wanted to toot my own horn, but I, I was, yeah, I wasn't bad at that. Anything on a horse, I'm, I'm usually pretty good at. <laughs> All right, great. Uh, so if you could live, uh, if you could live for a week as any person in history, who would it be? <laughs> so I've always said that, the other degree that would have been incredibly helpful for me to do all the jobs that I've had in industry, especially the leadership roles, would be a psychology degree. So I'd probably want to go spend a week as Freud or Nietzsche or someone like that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Really understand how the how the human mind works, because I've questioned it many, many times throughout my career. <laughs> well, it'd be uh, kind of spectacular to be inside the mind of someone who is trying to figure out how other people work, right? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. That's really cool. All right. Well, thanks very much, Kathy, for joining us for the Talent Talks podcast. Thank you again so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. All right. This episode of Talent Talks is a production of the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement and the students at Wicked Radio. We're coming at you from my office at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. And Kathy, where are we reaching you? I'm in my office on the Prescott campus of Embry-Riddle. All right. This episode was recorded and edited by me. Michelle Day is our program manager. Edmund Odarte is executive director of alumni engagement. And Tony Brown is executive director of communications. Please send us your thoughts about our show. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link. I read all your messages. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.